sing together then. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right, and speaks truth in his heart. Who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbour? nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honours those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Amen. Now some people as I probably as I introduced this um, a few Sunday mornings ago look at this uh, as an entrance psalm. The idea that uh, someone asked some questions, who may go in into the Lord's presence? Who may be in his presence? But it's really not that type of psalm is it as you look at it. The question is more who shall rest, who shall dwell, who shall enjoy being in the presence of God. And then we get the answer to that, which is the bulk of the psalm, as we'll think, and we'll think about how that is arranged. And then right at the end, there is a promise concerning those who do these things. So it's not an, an issue about being entrance, being accepted into the very presence of God, I'd suggest it's more this, the enjoyment of being in God's presence. And now there's a thing for all Christians, isn't it? Are you enjoying, do you enjoy communion and fellowship with God? Do you enjoy your salvation that you have? Because that's not a question of are you accepted, we are accepted, If you've got faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're trusting in him alone, then you have entrance in. But enjoyment of salvation, enjoyment of the things of God, is very much dependent upon our obedience to him. And sometimes the the, the answer, why are we not enjoying the things of God, is because of sin, disobedience in our life. That will hinder, greatly hinder, the enjoyment of communion with God. It's not a question of losing your salvation. We cannot lose our salvation, of course. But, of course, what we do understand is if we are saved, there are things that God will work out in our lives. And as we look into the bulk of this psalm, as the question is asked in in verse 1, who shall sojourn, who shall dwell, we'll go through and we'll all be convicted. We'll all think, well, we don't meet this perfectly, and we do not. There is only one person who has ever lived who has met this absolutely perfectly, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is because we are in him, through our faith, and we are in him, that we are accepted into the very presence of God through repentance of our sin and faith in Jesus Christ and so the whole gospel is that isn't it and this the message of this psalm is not a do these things and you will be saved it's be saved and you will do these works and as you do these works 
as you do these things this isn't a comprehensive psalm here tonight what we're going to think it will lead to enjoyment of the things of God and the gospel tells us friends that by the indwelling Holy Spirit who's in each and every one who is a Christian, we are able, empowered, enabled to do the things that please God. We are enabled to do that. And in fact, Romans 8, you'll remember that quite well. Well, you'll remember it when I say the phrase, verses 3 and 4, but more particularly verse 4. Romans 8, verse 3 and 4 says this, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh now this is verse 4 in order so why in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. So what is the righteous requirement of the law? Well, it's a holiness of life, isn't it? And so we are told that by God sending his son, his son dying for sin upon the cross, condemning sin in the flesh, the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk according to the spirit of God. And we are empowered by the indwelling spirit that we can do that. So we're going to think about that. The question has been raised in verse 1, as I've said. And then the structure of the psalm is like this. Remember these are, this is poetry, it's designed to be sung. And there's six couplets, six couplets. And that's how we're going to take it. We're going to take it as these six couplets and look at that. And once we've gone through those six couplets, and I introduce them each time, we will then see there is this great promise. He who do those things will never shall never be moved, will be secure, will be steadfast in dwelling in the very presence of God, and I will say, enjoy, enjoy the presence of God. So I've called these six couplets the attributes of the joyfully secure. And if you like that, you can remember it, and if you don't like it, well, you can just discard it, I suppose. The attributes of the joyfully secure. One is then, number one, character. Character. We see that he who walks blamelessly and does what is right. Blameless. That's not perfection. That's not sinless perfection. A person of integrity is what we are thinking about here. Blamelessness expressed in a walk. Actions in life. Let's illustrate that. Who do we think of when we think of blameless? Well, one we could think of Noah, couldn't we? Noah. How was the world in the times of Noah? Because we think our world is bad now, don't we? Hard to live the Christian life, we say. Well, Noah was blameless in a wicked world. Genesis 6-9 says, These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. So amidst all the ungodliness... Amidst all the sin and wickedness of his generation in his world, God said, there is a man who walked blamelessly before me. Who else could we think of? Well, we could think of Job, but maybe we'll think of Daniel. 
just quickly. Daniel, around about 80 years old, he gets placed into that den which was filled with lions to devour him. Well, they didn't. We know the story well, don't we? In Daniel 6, 2, uh, 22, pardon me, this is what Daniel says. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him, and also before you, O king. I have done no harm. You might remember how it was, how Daniel came to be in that den, how the, the king himself was deceived, how he was tricked by his counsellors. who wanted him in. Because they previously had looked at Daniel's life, his private life, his dealings, all through the decades of that, as much as they could. And there was nothing whatsoever they could pin on him. There wasn't any law that they could say, yeah, he's broken that, he deserves punishment. You remember that. The only thing with Daniel was this, that he prayed daily, three times daily. And that was the only thing they were going to get him on. So there was that law constructed, you know, just pray to the, the king for those 30 days. And Daniel wouldn't change, would he? But he could say without any hint of arrogance whatsoever, I was found blameless before him. And so when we think of a man or a woman who's living blameless, it's not in a world of perfection. It's in a world of wickedness and ungodliness where it asks the man, a woman of God, to be different and to live differently. That their actions might be right. There might be integrity in their actions. They might do the right thing at all times, even when it is costly. And so the young believer at school in the university, in the workplace. And whatever that might be, wherever we are called, whatever we're called to do, fill out our tax returns, whatever that is, we do what is right because it pleases the Lord. So it is the character. But then the next couplet is about speech. Speaks truth in his heart and does not slander with his tongue. It's interesting, speaks truth in his heart. Speaks truth in his heart. So firstly, the truth is internalised in that person who pleases God. It's that they don't say one thing with their lips, but in, in their hearts they're believing something different entirely. You know, recently there was a, a friend of mine, he, and he spoke about knowing the right things to say. And we can all do that. It's easy to do that, isn't it? To know the right things to say in certain environments. And he would say, he would say some things and he didn't really believe them. But that, that kept him sort of clean before other people and gave the right impression. No. The one who will enjoy communion with God speaks truth in his heart. It's interesting that comes there, isn't it, in, in Psalm 15? Because you can remember Psalm 14, verse 1, can't you? The fool says... In his heart, there is no God. That's a lie. So that's the lie that the fool will say in his heart, and they'll base their life on there is no God, there is no accountability. But the one who is pleasing to God will not only say, of course, there is a God, but will affirm all the truth that they know. And of course, what we have here is the word of truth. So there will be truth in their hearts. But not only that, 
They will not slander. They will not slander. The tongue can be a deadly weapon. We all know that, don't we? We speak apparently between five to 10,000 words a day. I've never counted them, but you know, I, I just take that's the truth. It seems to be an accepted fact. And words can trip off our tongues easily. They do, don't they? And I guess let's include in that the things that we can type on our phones and send in messages or emails. I think we can broaden to that our communication. Slander. The authorised version has the word backbite, which really pictures it, doesn't it? To say something behind someone's back, which is like devouring of them. We'll think about that term in the book of Galatians soon enough. You know, to bite and devour one another. And that's what slander, that's an example of slander. That we say things about people. We might just say it at the dinner table between a husband and wife. We might say it between two close friends. It's still slander even when done in the privateness of the room when you think no one else is there, because God is. And who is the person who will enjoy communion with God? It is the one who will not slander. It will be the person who is something to the face of someone and something else behind their back. And seeking really to raise themselves up in the eyes of people by putting other people down. Although we might not consciously do that, or think that's why we're doing it, that is why, by putting others down, what are we doing? We're raising ourselves up, and that's appealing to the flesh. So let's be very careful. We all need that, don't we? Every single one of us. To be careful on how we speak concerning others. You know, the Proverbs... Uh, are very illustrative of this. In Proverbs 25, there's this, there's this verse which really does illustrate it. It says, a man who bears false witness, who lies, who says things against someone, against his neighbour, is like a war club smashing, or a sword cutting, or a sharp arrow piercing. That is the description, vivid as it is, of the person who says these things. He smashes, he pierces, and he cuts. So we should fill our speech with something else, shouldn't we? We thought in recent times, if we're not going to slander, and hopefully we're not, we're resolved to do that, then we're going to fill our speech with positive things. We can truly say, not flattery, but truly say that we might affirm something positive or godly in other people. If there's something we can speak well of, and speaking well starts in thinking well of others. Starts with humility as well, a thought in that. So the person who pleases God will have that character which is blameless, will have that speech which is true, but then thirdly we see will have conduct appropriate to a godly person. Does no evil to his neighbour, nor takes a reproach upon his friend. Doesn't do evil to his neighbour. Who is my neighbour? Well, that was the question the religious leaders asked the Lord Jesus Christ, didn't they? And he told the parable of the Good Samaritan, you remember. And so really, what was the lesson? It was anyone you came into contact with. That was your neighbour. So who is my neighbour? Well, yes, it could literally be my neighbour... Uh, in the community 
could be someone you sit next to at work someone actually in in church ministry with you anything like that is your neighbour your brother or sister of course as well in Christ but we wouldn't do evil why do people do evil to their neighbours again it's that the fleshly desire to be raised up to want to be seen to be better than others often the workplace can be like that the workplace can be like that that when a colleague falls it might mean promotion for you when a colleague doesn't do so well are you going to rush to their help or think well there's an opportunity for me to show how good I am doesn't do evil to them but want their best want their good that, that's very countercultural in the workplace presently and sadly there can be times if we're brutally honest and we need to be that even in ministry that we're involved in how do we feel when someone else seems very successful or gets praise and things like that cuts doesn't it doesn't do evil to his neighbour desires their good and we can do evil to our neighbour by calling the things that they do good you know what it says in Isaiah you know this well woe to those who call evil good and good evil so it does us no good in this ungodly world if we've got ungodly neighbours work colleagues, friends uh, and there's things that they are doing that are evil and we put our stamp of we condone such things no, because in so doing we're calling evil good and we're, we shouldn't do that that's doing evil to them that's doing evil to them to say if, if they're doing something that is evil to call it good and affirm that no, we shouldn't be doing that we shouldn't be doing that we should love our neighbour desiring their greatest good and what is their greatest good? well their greatest good is to come to Christ and to know Christ isn't it? We're not to envy them in any way. And then it says not to take up a reproach. And again, the idea is there of casting a slur, of gossiping. You know, if a bad report or story comes concerning them, uh, we'll seek to disprove it if we can. We're not going to be a conduit to take bad stories on, to take gossip on. You know, if we do here, it'll stop with us. We're not going to say, oh, I like that, and I'll pass that on so we're not going to take up the reproach against a friend so our conduct will be markedly different in this world and that is a challenge for all of us on these first three things that were thought about the character of the person the speech of the person the conduct but if we pay heed to these in these next three we'll understand that there will be for us greater enjoyment in communion with our Lord and greater pleasure to him as we do these things enabled by the Spirit of God. Let's look at number four. Number four, the couplet there. In whose eyes a vile person is despised but honours those who fear the Lord. 
What does that really, what's that saying to us? Well, it means this, I would suggest. He doesn't approve of those who turn away from the Lord, but honours others when they choose to follow God. Honour to whom honour is due. So who do people honour in our society? At school, university, in the media, who is raised up as examples to follow? Who are the heroes in our world? Who are the heroes your friends have? Well, you can answer that. But largely, and you know, younger people, older people as well, of course. But who is raised up? Are those who are quite ungodly? Those who are quite ungodly in their behaviour, in their example. Now, we shouldn't expect sinners to do anything but sin. I under- we understand that. We understand that. But we're not to raise them up. I mean, this, the verse 4 is quite descriptive, isn't it? In whose eyes a vile person is despised. So the, the person who is pleasing God, the person who's got a character which resembles more like the Lord Jesus Christ, is not going to raise up the ungodly. But is going to honour those who fear the Lord. You think of people, you can think of people who have served the Lord for decades. Decades. In their local assembly, in places, they're the people who deserve great honour. You will have heard the story. Well, well remarked on, um, and I'm, I'll show you it's true, of, the, of a returning missionary couple. And they were coming back to America on a boat, so it was obviously, well, probably a long time ago. But they were coming back after decades of service in a foreign country. And they come back, and as, the, as it pulls in, there was a, a sporting hero on the boat. And he gets off the boat, and there's the band, and there's the press, and there's everything, you know, honour, and there's the ticker tape and all that for that sporting hero. But there was no one for this couple who came off. See, the world wouldn't honour them. Of course, the great thing is the wife says to the husband, well, we're not home yet. And that's true. That was the lesson there, of course. But it illustrates to us, those whom the world honours are not for us to get caught up in. We should truly honour those who fear the Lord. So we put honour where honour is due. Fifthly, it's integrity. Integrity of actions. Who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Who swears to his own hurt. He keeps his promises. He ke- they keep, she keeps her promises again broken promises are around everywhere aren't they we all make promises we all make vows if you're married you've made a vow if you've signed a mobile phone contract nowhere near as important I understand but you've made a vow that you will pay every month we make vows and promises all the time And God is a God who makes promises. God makes promises to you and to me. And you have banked your eternity on that, haven't you? You have banked your eternity on the promises that God has made in his word to you. And you you know that he will not change his word. 
It is an unchanging word. There are sure and certain promises. And so when we turn to the Bible, when we turn to the Bible and we find the promises of God in there, they are precious to us, aren't they? I hope they, well, I know they are to you. They are precious. And you're not thinking, I wonder if he'll change. No. You go to the promises that are to you, of course, right? I know there's promises that aren't to us, we understand that. But the promises that are to us, that are rightfully ours in the Bible, we bank on them, don't we? Because they come as God's word and he is not going to change. And so the child of God, the one who is going to enjoy communion with God, is going to resemble that behaviour. And even if it's to our hurt, if it's to our hurt, we're not going to try and escape on some technicality. We're going to be trustworthy. Because trustworthiness is a mark of our God. And as his people, we want to be trustworthy. The sort of person, let's be frank, who says if they're going to turn up somewhere, they will be there. They've sweared. They've vowed. They've promised that they will be there. They've promised that they will do that. It's even in those small things, isn't it? Because it's in the small things that we develop character day by day. We promise whatever it's going to be. You know? Mum, I've promised I'll make my bed. Well, there we go. There's a promise. There's greater ones we can make, but we get the idea. And we go on. Keep. If we make promises, we keep our word true to it. Although the circumstances may vary, events may come as much as we possibly can. We will keep our word, even when a better option might present itself. We think there's a better option. But no, the one who pleases the Lord, who enjoys communion with him, will swear to his own hurt, even if it hurts us, and does not change. And then sixthly, is with regard to finance, to finance. Does not put out his money at interest, does not take a bribe against the innocent. So we're not going to be greedy for money. We're going to use money and we're going to take money, we're going to put money in its right place. We're going to be stewards of it. We might use it in business and we might earn a profit. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, the parable of the talents makes that clear. The Lord Jesus Christ said to the man who was given that one talent, well, you could have done that and earned interest. So there's nothing wrong inherently in earning interest. The Lord Jesus says that himself. But we're not going to seek financial gain out of someone's impoverishment and need. We're not going to seek to take advantage of someone's weakness to strengthen our own position. Someone's need is not going to be a reason for us to exploit them. The child of God knows what he has been given is from God and to be used for God's glory. So there's no greediness for money. And if there's no greediness for money, there'll be no taking a bribe. Favouring the rich is not on the radar of the godly person, giving treatment, preferential treatment, to those who are, are rich. The, the book of James speaks about that, doesn't he? And of course when we think of a bribe, we're thinking about uh, the innocent and the guilty in a court case here, and that would probably be the primary application. But bribes exist in the business world. 
Maybe not so much in this country. The company I used to work for was, and other companies were as well, by the way, were fined hundreds of millions of pounds for bribery in Africa and Asia years ago. Hundreds of millions. Cost them a fortune. But I was surprised recently, a friend I was speaking with joined a smaller company in this country, in Aberdeen. And he left. And he left because he was asked, he was a director, to indulge in unjust business practices of bribery. Let's not think, because we live in this country and there's laws against it, it doesn't exist. It does. And he took a stand, he left. I'm not going to do that. Because the person who wants to please God, the person who has the Holy Spirit working in them, will run from that situation. They will not pervert justice for their own advantage. And so there are six things, six attributes of the joyfully secure. And I've called it that. Because at the end we see this great promise. He who does these things, he who acts in these ways, shall never be moved. They will be secure, they will be planted, they will have a sure foundation, enjoying the communion and the salvation that they have in God. Again, this psalm is not about entrance in, this psalm is about residing in the very presence of God and enjoying that. And as I said, the greater our obedience the greater our enjoyment of the things of the Lord. I think that makes sense, doesn't it? That just principle. You know, some of us can think when we were at home and we were children and we were disobedient. Well, some of you may be not disobedient, but, you know, there were some of us here who were. We didn't enjoy the relationship with our parents when we were. But when we were obedient, then there was greater enjoyment. That illustrates how it is for the child of God. May God bless his word to us.